Chapter Twelve, Part Two of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zachary Brewster Geis. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Twelve, Part Two. Central Chile. August twenty sixth. We left Jayuel and again crossed the basin of San Felipe. The day was truly Chilean, glaringly bright and the atmosphere quite clear. The thick and uniform covering of newly fallen snow rendered the view of the volcano of Equinagua and the main chain quite glorious. We were now on the road to Santiago, the capital of Chile. We crossed the Cerro del Taguen and slept at a little rancho. The host, talking about the state of Chile as compared to other countries, was very humble. Some see with two eyes, and some with one, but for my part I do not think that Chile sees with any. August 27th. After crossing many low hills we descended into the small landlocked plain of Guitron. In the basins, such as this one, which are elevated from 1,000 to 2,000 feet above the sea, two species of acacia, which are stunted in their forms, and stand wide apart from each other, grow in large numbers. These trees are never found near the seacoast, and this gives another characteristic feature to the scenery of these basins. We crossed a low ridge which separates Guitron from the great plain on which Santiago stands. The view here was preeminently striking, the dead level surface covered in parts by woods of acacia, and with the city in the distance, abutting horizontally against the base of the Andes, whose snowy peaks were bright with the evening sun. At the first glance of this view it was quite evident that the plain represented the extent of a former inland sea. As soon as we gained the level road we pushed our horses into a gallop and reached the city before it was dark. I stayed a week in Santiago and enjoyed myself very much. In the morning I rode to various places on the plain and in the evening dined with several of the English merchants, whose hospitality at this place is well known. A never-failing source of pleasure was to ascend the little hillock of rock, Santa Lucia, which projects in the middle of the city. The scenery certainly is most striking, and as I have said, very peculiar. I am informed that this same character is common to the cities on the great Mexican platform. Of the town I have nothing to say in detail. It is not so fine or so large as Buenos Aires, but is built after the same model. I arrived here by a circuit to the north, so I resolved to return to Valparaiso by a rather longer excursion to the south of the direct road. September 5th. By the middle of the day we arrived at one of the suspension bridges made of hide which crossed the Maipu, a large turbulent river a few leagues southward of Santiago. These bridges are very poor affairs. The road, following the curvature of the suspending ropes, is made of bundles of sticks placed close together. It was full of holes and oscillated rather fearfully, even with the weight of a man leading his horse. In the evening we reached a comfortable farmhouse, where there were several very pretty senoritas. They were much horrified at my having entered one of their churches out of mere curiosity. They asked me, why do you not become a Christian, for our religion is certain? I assured them I was a sort of Christian, but they would not hear of it. Appealing to my own words, 
Do not your padres, your very bishops, marry? The absurdity of a bishop having a wife particularly struck them. They scarcely knew whether to be most amused or horror-struck at such an enormity. Sixth. We proceeded due south and slept at Rakangua. The road passed over the level but narrow plain, bounded on one side by lofty hills, and on the other by the Cordillera. The next day we turned up the valley of the Rio Cacapuel, in which the hot baths of Cacuenes, long celebrated for their medicinal properties, are situated. The suspension bridges, in the less frequented parts, are generally taken down during the winter when the rivers are low. Such was the case in this valley, and we were therefore obliged to cross the stream on horseback. This is rather disagreeable, for the foaming water, though not deep, rushes so quickly over the bed of large rounded stones that one's head becomes quite confused, and it is difficult even to perceive whether the horse is moving onward or standing still. In summer, when the snow melts, the torrents are quite impassable. Their strength and fury are then extremely great, as might be plainly seen by the marks which they had left. We reached the baths in the evening, and stayed there five days, being confined the two last by heavy rain. The buildings consist of a square of miserable little hovels, each with a single table and bench. They are situated in a narrow deep valley just without the central cordillera. It is a quiet, solitary spot, with a good deal of wild beauty. The mineral springs of Coquenes burst forth on a line of dislocation, crossing a mass of stratified rock, the whole of which betrays the action of heat. A considerable quality of gas is continually escaping from the same orifices with the water. Though the springs are only a few yards apart, they have very different temperature, and this appears to be the result of an unequal mixture of cold water, for those with the lowest temperature have scarcely any mineral taste. After the great earthquake of 1822 the springs ceased, and the water did not return for nearly a year. They were also much affected by the earthquake of 1835, the temperature being suddenly changed from 118 to 92 degrees. Footnote 1. Caldola in Philosophical Transactions for 1836. End of footnote 1. It seems probable that mineral waters rising deep from the bowels of the earth would always be more deranged by subterranean disturbances than those nearer the surface. The man who had charge of the baths assured me that in summer the water is hotter and more plentiful than in winter. The former circumstance I should have expected from the less mixture during the dry season of cold water. But the latter statement appears very strange and contradictory. The periodical increase during the summer, when rain never falls, can I think only be accounted for by the melting of the snow. Yet the mountains which are covered by snow during that season are three or four leagues distant from the springs. I have no reason to doubt the accuracy of my informer, who, having lived on the spot for several years, ought to be well acquainted with the circumstance, which, if true, certainly is very curious. For we must suppose that the snow-water, being conducted through porous strata to the regions of heat, is again thrown up to the surface by the line of dislocated and injected rocks at Calcanes. And the regularity of the phenomenon would seem to indicate that in this district heated rock occurred at a depth not very great. One day I rode up the valley to the farthest inhabited spot. Shortly above that point, the Cacapuel divides into two deep tremendous ravines, which penetrate directly into the great range. 
I scrambled up a peaked mountain, probably more than six thousand feet high. Here, as indeed everywhere else, scenes of the highest interest presented themselves. It was by one of these ravines that Pinchiera entered Chile and ravaged the neighboring country. This is the same man whose attack on an estancia at the Rio Negro I have described. He was a renegade half-caste Spaniard, who collected a great body of Indians together and established himself by a stream in the Pampas, which place none of the forces sent after him could ever discover. From this point he used to sally forth, and crossing the Cordillera by passes hitherto unattempted, he ravaged the farmhouses and drove the cattle to his own secret rendezvous. Pinchiera was a capital horseman, and he made all around him equally good, for he invariably shot any one who hesitated to follow him. It was against this man and other wandering Indian tribes that Rosas waged the war of extermination. September 13th. We left the baths of Coquienes, and rejoining the main road, slept at the Rio Clara. From this place we rode to the town of San Fernando. Before arriving there, the last landlocked basin had expanded into a great plain, which extended so far to the south that the snowy summits of the more distant Andes were seen as if above the horizon of the sea. San Fernando is forty leagues from Santiago, and it was my farthest point southward, for we here turned at right angles towards the coast. We slept at the gold mines of Yaquil, which are worked by Mr. Nixon, an American gentleman, to whose kindness I was much indebted during the four days I stayed at his house. The next morning we rode to the mines, which are situated at the distance of some leagues, near the summit of a lofty hill. On the way we had a glimpse of the lake Taguatagua, celebrated for its floating islands, which have been described by Monsieur Gay. Footnote 2. Annale des sciences naturelles, March 1833. Monsieur Gay, a zealous and able naturalist, was then occupied in studying every branch of natural history throughout the kingdom of Chile. End of footnote 2. They are composed of the stalks of various dead plants intertwined together, and on the surface of which other living ones take root. Their form is generally circular, and their thickness from four to six feet, of which the greater part is immersed in the water. As the wind blows, they pass from one side of the lake to the other, and often carry cattle and horses as passengers. When we arrived at the mine, I was struck by the pale appearance of many of the men, and inquired from Mr. Nixon respecting their condition. The mine is 450 feet deep, and each man brings up about 200 pounds weight of stone. With this load they have to climb up the alternate notches cut in the trunks of trees, placed in a zigzag line up the shaft. Even beardless young men, eighteen and twenty years old, with little muscular development of their bodies, they are quite naked excepting drawers, ascend with this great load from nearly the same depth. A strong man who is not accustomed to this labor perspires most profusely with merely carrying up his own body. With this very severe labor they live entirely on boiled beans and bread. They would prefer having bread alone, but their masters, finding that they cannot work so hard upon this, treat them like horses and make them eat the beans. Their pay is here rather more than at the mines of Jajuel, being from twenty-four to twenty-eight shillings per month. They leave the mine only once in three weeks, when they stay with their families for two days. One of the rules of this mine sounds very harsh, but answers pretty well for the master. The only method of stealing gold is to secrete pieces of the ore 
and take them out as occasion may offer. Whenever the majordomo finds a lump thus hidden, its full value is stopped out of the wages of all the men, who thus, without all they combine, are obliged to keep watch over each other. When the ore is brought to the mill, it is ground into an impalpable powder. The process of washing removes all the lighter particles, and amalgamation finally secures the gold dust. The washing, when described, sounds a very simple process, but it is beautiful to see how the exact adaptation of the current of water to the specific gravity of the gold so easily separates the powdered matrix from the metal. The mud which passes from the mills is collected into pools, where it subsides, and every now and then is cleared out, and thrown into a common heap. A great deal of chemical action then commences. Salts of various kind effloresce on the surface, and the mass becomes hard. After having been left for a year or two, and then rewashed, it yields gold, and this process may be repeated even six or seven times, but the gold each time becomes less in quantity, and the intervals required, as the inhabitants say, to generate the metal, are longer. There can be no doubt that the chemical action already mentioned each time liberates fresh gold from some combination. The discovery of a method to effect this before the first grinding would without doubt raise the value of gold ores many-fold. It is curious to find how the minute particles of gold, being scattered about and not corroding, at last accumulate in some quantity. A short time since a few miners, being out of work, obtained permission to scrape the ground round the house and mills. They washed the earth thus got together, and so procured thirty dollars worth of gold. This is an exact counterpart of what takes place in nature. Mountains suffer degradation and wear away, and with them the metallic veins which they contain. The hardest rock is worn into impalpable mud, the ordinary metals oxidate, and both are removed. But gold, platina, and a few others are nearly indestructible, and from their weight, sinking to the bottom, are left behind. After whole mountains have passed through this grinding mill, and have been washed by the hand of nature, this residue becomes metalliferous, and man finds it worth his while to complete the task of separation. Bad as the above treatment of the miners appears, it is gladly accepted of by them, for the condition of the laboring agriculturists is much worse. Their wages are lower, and they live almost exclusively on beans. This poverty must be chiefly owing to the feudal-like system on which the land is tilled. The landowner gives a small plot of ground to the laborer for building on and cultivating, and in return has his services, or those of a proxy, for every day of his life, without any wages. Until a father has a grown-up son who can by his labor pay the rent, there is no one, except on occasional days, to take care of his own patch of ground. Hence extreme poverty is very common among the laboring classes in this country. There are some old Indian ruins in this neighborhood, and I was shown one of the perforated stones which Molina mentions as being found in many places in considerable numbers. They are of a circular flattened form, from five to six inches in diameter, with a hole passing quite through the center. It has generally been supposed that they were used as heads to clubs, although their form does not appear at all well adapted for that purpose. Birchall states that some of the tribes in southern Africa dig up roots by the aid of a stick pointed at one end, the force and weight of which are increased by a round stone with a hole in it, into which the other end is firmly wedged. Footnote 3. 
Burgess's Travels, Volume 2, page 45. End of footnote 3. It appears probable that the Indians of Chile formerly used some such rude agricultural instrument. One day a German collector in natural history of the name of Renus called, and nearly at the same time an old Spanish lawyer. I was amused at being told the conversation which took place between them. Renus speaks Spanish so well that the old lawyer mistook him for a Chilean. Renus, alluding to me, asked him what he thought of the King of England sending out a collector to their country to pick up lizards and beetles and to break stones. The old gentleman thought seriously for some time, and then said, It is not well. Hay un gato eserando aquí. There is a cat shut up here. No man is so rich as to send out people to pick up such rubbish. I do not like it. If one of us were to go and do such things in England, do you not think the King of England would very soon send us out of his country? And this old gentleman, from his profession, belongs to the better informed and more intelligent classes. Renews himself, two or three years before, left in a house at San Fernando some caterpillars under charge of a girl to feed, that they might turn into butterflies. This was rumored through the town, and at last the padres and governor consulted together, and agreed it must be some heresy. Accordingly, when Renews returned, he was arrested. September 19th. We left Yaquil and followed the flat valley formed like that of Quiota, in which the Rio Tinderica flows. Even at these few miles south of Santiago the climate is much damper. In consequence there are fine tracts of pasturage which are not irrigated. Twentieth. We followed this valley till it expanded into a great plain, which reaches from the sea to the mountains west of Rancagua. We shortly lost all trees and even bushes, so that the inhabitants are nearly as badly off for firewood as those in the Pampas. Never having heard of these plains, I was much surprised at meeting with such scenery in Chile. The plains belong to more than one series of different elevations, and they are traversed by broad flat-bottomed valleys, both of which circumstances, as in Patagonia, bespeak the action of the sea on gently rising land. In the steep cliffs bordering these valleys there are some large caves which no doubt were originally formed by the waves. One of these is celebrated under the name of Cueva del Obispo, having formerly been consecrated. During the day I felt very unwell, and from that time till the end of October did not recover. September 22nd. We continued to pass over green plains without a tree. The next day we arrived at a house near Navidad on the seacoast, where a rich haciendero gave us lodgings. I stayed here the two ensuing days, and although very unwell, managed to collect from the tertiary formation some marine shells. 24th. Our course was now directed towards Valparaiso, which with great difficulty I reached on the 27th, and was there confined to my bed till the end of October. During this time I was an inmate in Mr. Corfield's house, whose kindness to me I do not know how to express. I will here add a few observations on some of the animals and birds of Chile. The puma, or South American lion, is not uncommon. This animal has a wide geographical range, being found from the equatorial forests throughout the deserts of Patagonia as far south as the damp and cold latitudes, 53 to 54 degrees, of Tierra del Fuego. 
I have seen its footsteps in the Cordillera of central Chile, at an elevation of at least ten thousand feet. In La Plata, the puma preys chiefly on deer, ostriches, bizcaca, and other small quadrupeds. It there seldom attacks cattle or horses, and most rarely man. In Chile, however, it destroys many young horses and cattle, owing probably to the scarcity of other quadrupeds. I heard likewise of two men and a woman who had been thus killed. It is asserted that the puma always kills its prey by springing on the shoulders, and then drawing back the head with one of its paws until the vertebrae break. I have seen in Patagonia the skeletons of guanacos, with their necks thus dislocated. The puma, after eating its fill, covers the carcass with many large bushes, and lies down to watch it. This habit is often the cause of its being discovered, for the condors, wheeling in the air every now and then, descend to partake of the feast, and being angrily driven away, rise altogether on the wing. The chileno guaso then knows there is a lion watching his prey, the word is given, and men and dogs hurry to the chase. Sir F. Head says that a gaucho in the Pampas, upon merely seeing some condors wheeling in the air, cried, A lion! I could never myself meet with any one who pretended to such powers of discrimination. It is asserted that if a puma has once been betrayed by thus watching the carcass, and has then been hunted, it never resumes this habit, but that, having gorged itself, it wanders far away. The puma is easily killed. In an open country, it is first entangled with the bolas, then lassoed, and dragged along the ground till rendered insensible. At Tandil, south of the Plata, I was told that within three months one hundred were thus destroyed. In Chile they are generally driven up bushes or trees, and are either then shot or baited to death by dogs. The dogs employed in this chase belong to a particular breed called leoneros. They are weak, slight animals, like long-legged terriers, but are born with a particular instinct for this sport. The puma is described as being very crafty. When pursued, it often returns on its former track, and then suddenly making a spring on one side, waits there till the dogs have passed by. It is a very silent animal, uttering no cry even when wounded, and only rarely during the breeding season. Of birds, two species of the genus Terapocos, Megapodius and Abacolus, of Kittilitz, are perhaps the most conspicuous. The former, called by the Chilenos El Turco, is as large as a field fair, to which bird it has some alliance, but its legs are much longer, tail shorter, and beak stronger. Its color is a reddish-brown. The Turco is not uncommon. It lives on the ground, sheltered among the thickets which are scattered over the dry and sterile hills. With its tail erect and stilt-like legs, it may be seen every now and then popping from one bush to another with uncommon quickness. It really requires very little imagination to believe that the bird is ashamed of itself, and is aware of its most ridiculous figure. On first seeing it, one is tempted to exclaim, A vilely stuffed specimen has escaped from some museum, and has come to life again. It cannot be made to take flight without the greatest trouble, nor does it run but only hops. The various loud cries which it utters when concealed amongst the bushes are as strange as its appearance. It is said to build its nest in a deep hole beneath the ground. 
I dissected several specimens. The gizzard, which was very muscular, contained beetles, vegetable fibers, and pebbles. From this character, from the length of its legs, scratching feet, membranous covering to the nostrils, short and arched wings, this bird seems in a certain degree to connect the thrushes with the gallinaceous order. The second species, or P. abicolis, is allied to the first in its general form. It is called tapacolo, or cover your posterior, and well does the shameless little bird deserve its name, for it carries its tail more than erect, that is, inclined backwards towards its head. It is very common, and frequents the bottom of hedgerows, and the bushes scattered over the barren hills, where scarcely another bird can exist. In its general manner of feeding, of quickly hopping out of the thickets and back again, in its desire of concealment, unwillingness to take flight, and nidification, it bears a close resemblance to the turco, but its appearance is not quite so ridiculous. The tepicolo is very crafty. When frightened by any person, it will remain motionless at the bottom of a bush, and will then, after a little while, try with much address to crawl away on the opposite side. It is also an active bird, and continually making a noise. These noises are various and strangely odd. Some are like the cooing of doves, others like the bubbling of water, and many defy all similes. The country people say it changes its cry five times in the year, according to some change of season, I suppose. Footnote 4 It is a remarkable fact that Molina, though describing in detail all the birds and animals of Chile, never once mentions this genus, the species of which are so common and so remarkable in their habits. Was he at a loss how to classify them, and did he consequently think that silence was the more prudent course? It is one more instance of the frequency of omissions by authors on those very subjects where it might have been least expected. End of footnote. Two species of hummingbirds are common. Troculus forficatus is found over a space of 2,500 miles on the west coast, from the hot dry country of Lima to the forests of Tierra del Fuego, where it may be seen flitting about in snowstorms. In the wooded island of Chiloe, which has an extremely humid climate, this little bird, skipping from side to side amidst the dripping foliage, is perhaps more abundant than almost any other kind. I opened the stomachs of several specimens, shot in different parts of the continent, and in all remains of insects were as numerous as in the stomach of a creeper. When this species migrates in the summer southward, it is replaced by the arrival of another species coming from the north. This second kind, Troculus gigas, is a very large bird for the delicate family to which it belongs, when on the wing its appearance is singular. Like others of the genus, it moves from place to place with a rapidity which may be compared to that of Cirphus amongst flies, and Sphinx among moths. But whilst hovering over a flower, it flaps its wings with a very slow and purposeful movement, totally different from that vibratory one common to most of the species, which produces the humming noise. I never saw any other bird where the force of its wings appeared, as in a butterfly, so powerful in proportion to the weight of its body. When hovering by a flower, its tail is constantly expanded and shut like a fan, the body being kept in a nearly vertical position. This action appears to steady and support the bird between the slow movements of its wings. 
although flying from flower to flower in search of food, its stomach generally contained abundant remains of insects, which I suspect are much more the object of its search than honey. The note of this species, like that of nearly the whole family, is extremely shrill. End of chapter 12, part 2 Recording by Zachary Brewstergeis, Greenbelt, Maryland, July 2007